This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Our dear Father, we thank you that you have put your word in our hands and your spirit in our hearts. Father, we pray now that your spirit would take your word and show us Christ. And we pray that this would transform us. For Christ's sake. Amen. Well, it's been four months since I've arrived in Singapore. And as I said a minute ago, we came from Australia. And before we left Australia, of course, all kinds of people came to us to tell us what Singapore would be like. Our various friends tried to summarise what life in Singapore would be like for us. Uh, they thought this would kind of help us to make the right preparations just before we left. Now, what were the kind of things that they told us about Singapore? Well, we got told some, some true and some helpful things. Things like this. Oh, Singapore. Very humid and hot. Be ready to drink lots of water. Or we got told this one a number of times. Oh, Singapore, Singapore. You'll love the food. It's cheap. It's so tasty. But we were told things that actually weren't so helpful about Singapore. For example, one person came to me and said, you know, Marty, it's an absolute necessity. You have to know how to speak the local Chinese dialects when you go to Singapore. Now, I've seen actually that that's not so crucial. It may have been 30 years or so, but not so much today. I talked to my students there at ETC. Uh, they don't even know how to speak any dialects or anything. They, they didn't like uh, learning Mandarin, and they're, they're quite happy with English. You see, the way that you summarise Singapore for someone could be a help or it could be a hindrance. I mean, if you had to summarise what Singapore was like in, say, five points that they needed to know, what would those five points be? You'd have to choose them wisely, wouldn't you? So that you don't misrepresent Singapore. Would one of those five points be, Marty, one of the things you really need to know about Singapore are the rubbish bins of Tampanese MRT. No, you wouldn't need to know that because the rubbish bins at Tampanese MRT are not that important when it comes to understanding what Singapore is like. Summarising what Singapore is like can be a help or a hindrance depending on what is important to Singapore and what is not important to Singapore. And you know, exactly the same thing goes for Christianity. If someone were to ask you, hey, hey, what is Christianity? Can you summarise it in five points? What would you say? Would you say, well, uh, Jesus taught something. Um, Jesus taught that the mustard seed is really small. You wouldn't say that because that's not crucial to Christianity. You'd almost be misleading them if you said that. See, how do we faithfully summarise the Christian faith? 
Or put another way, what are the most important topics in the Christian faith? Now, that's what we're going to be thinking about over this camp. We're going to be looking at summarising the Christian faith. We're going to explore Christian belief from the 30,000 foot perspective. We're going to have a bird's eye view on Christianity's most important topics. And this is what Christians over the years have called systematic theology. Theology because it's topics, systematic because we're going to have an overview of the main topics. Systematic theology is just simply summarising the most important topics in the Bible. You might be sitting there thinking, now look, Marty, um, really, mate, why do we have to do this? I mean, didn't God just give us an inspired Bible? Isn't that enough? Surely we don't have to go summarising the Bible topically. Why do we have to summarise the Bible topically? I'll tell you why. Because the Bible tells us to do it. For example, have a look at what Jude verse 3 says. Jude, of course, was Jesus' brother, if you didn't know. Jesus' brother writes this. He says, I felt compelled to write and to urge you to contend or literally to fight for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Now, look at what Jude is saying when he writes this little letter. He's telling these Christians, you've got to contend, you've got to fight for the faith. Now, here is the question. What is the faith? When Paul used, when Jude uses that phrase, the faith, he's speaking of what Christians believe. The faith, in other words, is a collection of topics that make up Christian core beliefs. Now, I want you to notice something important. Sorry, I'll just go back about this. Notice that the faith is in the singular. It's not, I've written to you to contend for a faith. It's not, I've written for you to contend for a collection of faiths. No, Jude says, I have written for you to contend for the faith. One faith. In other words, Christian truth can be summarised as a whole. Let's say they're the most important truths. It's not just a bunch of faiths. It's the faith, because Christian truth can be seen as an interconnected map. See, think about it. Why is it critical for Christians to be able to summarise the Christian faith as a whole? Well, it's really simple. If we know what the central Christian topics are then we'll know what's most important to God. And if we know what's most important to God, then we'll know how to use our lives most effectively for God. In other words, if we know what's important to God, if we know those central topics, we won't waste our lives on trivia. 
Just like my friends who were giving advice to Jenny and me about what Singapore was like. If you don't know what's important to Singapore, you won't be able to give very good advice to people going to Singapore. You won't know how to live very effectively in Singapore. And so that's what we're going to be doing over the course of the camp. We're going to explore a map of the most important Christian and biblical topics. And what we're going to do is we're going to unpack each of the most important topics and we're going to see how they affect our lives. So, let's have a bit of a think about the kind of map of topics that we want to explore. And if we're looking at the most important topics, let's start with this question. I wonder if you can answer it. What's the most important topic in the Bible? What's the most important topic in the Bible? Any ideas? Sorry to get you thinking so late at night. I know it's a bit criminal to do that. Don't be shy. What do you think is the most important topic in the Bible? Size of a mustard seed? God is? Any other takers? Holiness? Holiness? Salvation brought by Jesus? Okay, there's three contenders already. How do we know which one's right? How how would we work out which one's right? Heaven. Heaven. There's another one. There's number four. How would we know which one's the most important one? Hell. Hell? Okay, number five. We're going for five. Hell's more important than heaven? How would you work out what's the most important one? Peace. How many times is repeated? Okay, the word and would probably... No, 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 I'm joking. (laughs) How about what the Bible tells us is the most important topic? Can anyone think of where the Bible might say this is the most important topic? Jesus Christ, where would the Bible say that? Can you think of anywhere where the Bible says... The greatest commandment. Okay, that's the greatest commandment, but are doing commandments the most important thing? That's a good start. Why don't you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And look at what the Apostle Paul says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look at 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3. The Apostle Paul says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. Right? So what we're going to hear now is the most important topic. Let's go back a couple of verses before we do and just get a proper introduction to this topic. Look at verse 1. And look what the Apostle Paul says. He says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you were saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, 
you have believed in vain. And now he goes on to talk about the gospel. For what I received, verse 3, I passed on to you as of first importance, here it is, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Let's leave it there just for the moment. So the most important topic as of first importance, of course, is the gospel. Now, according to these verses, what's the gospel? Christ died. That's part of it, isn't it? Anything else? Mm -hmm. Christ was buried, yep. Anything else? Christ rose again. Good, fantastic. As of first importance that Christ died, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again according to the Scriptures. So what are we focusing on? We're focusing on Christ's work. What he did on the cross. His death, his burial, and his resurrection. Who died on the cross? Christ. What does Christ mean? Messiah. What's a Messiah? That's right. But what's a Messiah? Anointed one. What's an anointed one? That's that's right. Spot on. Appointed to be a king. That's right. So the gospel's focus is on the person and the work of Christ. Who he is, he's the Christ. He's the king. Okay. What did he do? He died and he rose again. Now, in order to properly understand the gospel, of course, you've got to know why Christ died. Now, according to this passage, why did Christ die? For our sins. Okay, so we're going to need the topic of sin. Very, very important topic in the Bible. Okay, very, very important. But of course, if we're going to understand sin, we've got to ask the question, who sins? Who? Our sin, of course. So... We need to know something about humanity, human beings. Okay, another incredibly important topic because you can't understand also who Jesus is until you understand what a human is. But of course, you can't understand what a human is until you know something about creation, the creation that we're in. Okay? Now, of course. If you're going to start talking about creation, you've got to then naturally ask the question, which is a really important topic in the Bible, who did the creating? And of course, that's obvious, isn't it? God did the creating. And what we see is that while the gospel is of first importance, the doctrine of God is of ultimate importance. But we're going to see that the only way to understand God is through the gospel. Now, of course, what does this passage say about how we come to know the true gospel? It says that Christ died for sins, what? According to the scriptures. So, 
We've got to know something about how God talks to us or how we gain a true knowledge of God. Christ died according to the Scriptures. See, if you think uh, that you find truth in the Hindu writings, you're going to come to a very different map, aren't you? But if you think that God speaks to us in Scripture, you're going to come to this kind of map. Now, let me ask you, when were you saved? Were you saved when Christ died on the cross? No. When were you saved? Was that Nick? You are saved? Good. It'd be, it'd be great. It'd be great to know. When you believe, that's right. So did Christ save you on the cross? Or did Christ save you when you believed? Yes, but particularly when you believe. In other words, what we've got to do is we've got to draw a really, really important distinction here. A distinction between salvation accomplished, something that Jesus did, that's what the gospel is, it's salvation accomplished, and then salvation applied in time. And that's what the doctrine of salvation is all about, right? How you become a Christian. But of course, it's not only just Nick that became a Christian. There are other people that have become Christians, aren't they? In fact, Jesus died for a people, didn't he? And so we've got to think about a doctrine of the church, all those people that will benefit from Christ's work. And then the final topic is salvation finally applied. That is the future, new creation, what we call the last things. Now, there's the map that we're going to go through over the next couple of days. Don't worry if it's all too much information for you now. We're going to go over it, we'll unpack it, and hopefully by the time you leave you'll be sick and tired of it, which will be a really good thing because you'll know it so well. And then when someone asks you what Christianity is about, you'll be able to tell them. Okay, so just keep the rough out on your mind. We're going to be coming back to it. What we're going to do in the rest of this talk is unpack the doctrine of creation. You see, when Christianity arrives into a new culture, one that has had no contact with the gospel before, what is the first topic that pretty much always gets clarified in that culture? It's the topic, believe it or not, of creation. Creation, of course, is where the Bible starts. When the Apostle Paul preached not to Jews but to Gentiles in the book of Acts, he started with the topic of creation. And when we look at the history of the church after the Apostles died, when the Gospel went out, into a Gentile world, what was the first topic that got clarified in controversy? It was the topic of creation. Why? Well, let's just unpack a little bit of that history in the early church after the apostles and see exactly why. You see, the world that the gospel went out into 
after the apostles was the ancient Roman Empire. And the question is this, where did most people in that empire think the world came from? What were the origins of the world? What was the origins of the physical world around them? Well, most people at that time, believe it or not, thought that the physical world around them was actually eternal. They believed that physical matter had always been there from eternity past and would always be there to eternity future. But the question is this, okay, maybe physical matter's always been there, but how did it come to look the way that it does? I mean, how did the world come to have trees and, and seas and, and mountains and clouds? Well, at that time in the Roman Empire, they believed that originally physical matter was just this big, shapeless hunk. It was initially just this unformed mass. And there was a great being that came along. And this great being they called the Demiurge. And what this Demiurge did is to take this mass of matter and form it into the world as it looks now. Something like that. Took this mass, formed it into the world now. In other words, this great being, this Demiurge, was, was kind of like a potter who takes a little bit like unformed clay, takes this unformed matter and he shapes it into the world as we now know it. Now, this seems like a very strange idea, I'm sure, to you as it does to me. But you know what? This idea of how things came to be was so strongly held that it dramatically affected the early Christians who read the Bible. That is, the early Christians of the second century believed that Genesis 1 taught that. They thought Genesis 1 was God taking this raw, unshaped matter and moulding it into the world that we now know it. Think about Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They took create there to mean form. What does the next verse say? Now, the earth was formless and empty. See this mass of matter? Darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the world. See? And then the, the six creation days were God taking and forming the world as it is now. Listen to Justin Martyr. He's a second century Christian. He says this, God changed shapeless matter and created the world. God, by his word, created the whole world out of matter. Or he says this, God formed all things out of unformed matter. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, for goodness sake, I've come along to this camp, you've got this guy out the front, he's talking about unformed matter and all the you know, old ideas in the Roman. Marty, does it really matter what we believe about this? Does it really matter if God made the world out of unformed matter, or if he didn't. Absolutely. You see, the second century church came to realise how much was at stake over this view. 
They realised that what we believe about creation is tied to what we believe about God. Think about it. If something other than God is eternal, then God doesn't have control over it. If matter, for example, is eternal, always was and always will be, and you know what? God can't destroy it. It's always been there, it will always be there. In other words, physical matter is something that God doesn't have power over. Let me put it another way. Physical matter then is greater than God. See the conclusion? God is not all-powerful. Put another way, anything else that is eternal must also be God. Or divine. In fact, you can go further. If something other than God did exist before creation, then that something other than God may have forced God to create the world. And then that would question whether God was really free or not. I mean, maybe this eternal thing that was there could somehow control God. In other words... Anything else that's eternal is tantamount to being another God. And so as the second century Christians debated with those in the Roman Empire over this topic, they came to talk about creation in a particular way that Scripture teaches to help get a Christian view of creation across. And it was this. What did God make the world out of? Answer? Nothing. They began to speak of creation from nothing. God created the heavens and the earth from nothing. Now, why is it so important to say that? Well, think about it. If God creates all things from nothing, then God and God alone is uncreated. And if God is uncreated, then he must be eternal. Or, let me put it another way, he must be infinite. Because eternal means unbounded, infinite, See, the second century Christians could see that this is exactly what Scripture was saying. It said things like this, Before the mountains were born, or you, God, brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you were God. See, before creation, before anything had come about, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You see, if God is eternal or infinite, then God must be very different, of a very different kind from the creation. Look at how the Bible describes the difference between God and the creation. 
It says this in Psalm 102. In the beginning, God, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the works of your hand. Now look at the comparison. They, creation, the heavens, they will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. That includes us, doesn't it? Like clothing, you will change them and they will be discarded. But look at this. You remain the same and your years will never end. Notice the two things that are say, that are being said about God here. God is not like us because he will not grow tired or weary. That's really interesting, isn't it? It means that God is self-sustaining. God doesn't need food to keep himself going. God doesn't need sleep to rejuvenate himself. God is an eternal font of life in and of himself. You say, Marty, aren't we going to be eternal? Don't we have eternal life? Yes, we will live forever. But we will only live forever because God will sustain us and keep us alive forever. We are created. We will never be self-sustaining. God is. Notice the second thing that is said here. Uh, where are we? Yes, look at this. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary and his understanding no one will fathom. You see, if God is infinite, see that bottom line? Then his understanding no one can fathom. There is no way that we can fully understand God. As the great 5th century theologian Augustine once said, you can't pour the Atlantic Ocean into a teacup. It won't fit. God is limitless. Our minds are limited and we cannot comprehend God. If we could fully understand God, we'd be God. But of course we never can. Now this is precisely the logic that Paul used when he went to Athens and spoke to the Athenian philosophers there. Look at what he says. Oh, no, it's not that verse, is it? Why don't you turn to Acts 17, verse 24. Ah, no, I've got it here. Don't worry, you don't have to. Particularly if you've got arthritis of the fingers, you'll be fine. Look at what Paul says to the Athenian philosophers. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, his creation, is the Lord of heaven and earth. And look at this. He does not live in temples built by human hands. You see, God is infinite and he cannot be squashed into a temple. He can't even be squashed into any part of this creation. If we could fit God into this creation, that would make the infinite God finite. And to do that is to commit idolatry. And that is precisely why the Bible forbids no images ever be made of God. Because you cannot depict the infinite in a finite picture. As Paul says here about the cre creator, look at verse 25, 
God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. God has no needs. See, God doesn't need sleep. God doesn't need food. And you know what? God doesn't need me. And God doesn't need you. He's not dependent on you. We're dependent on him. I remember once when I was a young boy in a scripture class, a scripture teacher came out and said, Now, uh, boys and girls, do you know why God created the world? We all there going, no, we don't know why God created the world. And he said, this is why God created the world, because God was lonely. <laughs> and you know what? That's actually blasphemous. Because if God is lonely, he has needs. He needs company. But that is to confuse the creator and the creature. See, let's stand back and think about it. What is it that makes God, God? You might say, well, surely it's God's love. But hang on, humans can love. So it can't just be love that makes God, God. Well, maybe it's God's mercy. He's merciful. Well, humans at times can be merciful. So it can't just be mercy that makes God, God. What is it about God that makes God, God? And it's simply this, that God is infinite. And therefore, his love is an infinite love, unlike ours. His mercy is an infinite mercy, unlike ours. His power is an infinite power, unlike ours. God is in a completely different category from all of creation. And if we confuse the creator and the creation, we commit idolatry. You know what word the Bible uses for God's otherness, for the fact that he is completely different from his creation? It's the word holy. Because holy basically means separate. And it is because God is holy, 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 that he is to be the only one that is worshipped. And that is why Isaiah says, the Lord Almighty is the one that you are to regard as holy. And so therefore, he is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. Now, of course, the fear of God here does not mean fright. It means reverence. And dread here doesn't mean being scared. It means being awestruck. So the only truly awesome thing that exists is God. One of the trends I've noticed back in Australia, I don't know if it's here, but back in Australia over the last 30 years is how Christians have actually come to start cracking jokes about God. We're going to be really careful doing that. Because one of the functions of humour is to trivialise. 
And there's nothing less trivial than God. See, Moses discovered justice in Exodus 33 because Moses had the audacity to go to God and say, God, show me your glory. And what did God say back to Moses? He said, Moses, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. You see, the created human eye can't handle the uncreated Glory of God. Do you see why the doctrine of creation is so important? It puts God in his right place. He and he alone is to be worshipped. No wonder when the biblical writers were talking about God the Father, they so easily broke out into spontaneous praise when they spoke of God. Look at what Paul does just after he talks about his conversion. In 1 Timothy 1, and he says, Now to the king, look, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. The true response to the true God. Probably the most well-known atheist at the moment is, of course, Richard Dawkins. Uh, He is famous for his book, The God Delusion. And you know what the fundamental argument of The God Delusion is? It goes like this. There can be no such thing as a God who designed everything because if there was, it raises an inevitable question. Who designed the designer? Who designed the designer? Can you see what Richard Dawkins is doing here? He's mistaking God for his creation. Richard Dawkins can only conceive of God as something created. A finite God inside his own creation itself. In other words, Richard Dawkins has confused God for an idol. All he's really tried to do is set out to disprove an idol and he hasn't really even done that. God is uncreated. That's what makes him God. So we've seen the importance of the doctrine, the topic of creation. God is the creator of absolutely everything. Or put another way to get the point across, God created everything from nothing. This is a teaching that was hammered out by Christians in the second century. And because it was so important, they codified it in the two early creeds of the church. The Apostles' Creed starts... I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, maker of everything. The Nicene Creed starts, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of all things, seen and unseen. And if God has created absolutely everything, then this means there is an important distinction between God and his creation. God is uncreated and therefore infinite. As Paul says, God alone is immortal and he lives in unapproachable light. 
whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honour and might forever. Can I hear an Amen. Would anybody like to ask any questions? So we do have Q&A time on Friday, but if you have questions now, you can just ask. Better be everybody. Clarify something? Question something? Questions, comments, words of testimony, prophecies, song, song. <laughs> you ask question. Why God created us? Yes, God created us. I'll just put up there. God created us according to Ephesians one by His own good pleasure and free will. If it wasn't that, then He would have been forced to create us. If He was forced to create us, then He wouldn't be God. So it was something out of His good pleasure that He chose to do. Yes, it depends what you mean by you don't believe the doctrine of creation. Yeah, you're gonna. It, um, the creation of everything by God is is a fundamental truth of Scripture that really you can't deny without the, the gospel falling apart. The gospel actually won't make sense if you don't believe that God created everything, ultimately. Uh, because you won't, as we'll see, the doctrine of creation sets up the topic of God, and once you understand who God is, it's infinite, and eternal, etc., etc., it's only then that we can understand sin, See, and that sin is eternal and infinite. And it's only when you understand sin that then you can understand what Jesus did on the cross for us. Now, when it comes to science and creation, um, I think one of the biggest lies of the modern world is that somehow science and religion are against each other. Uh, where in actual fact, science and Christianity uh, harmonise wonderfully. Now, the origins of modern science, where did it come from? It came from the Christian world. I mean, probably the, the you know, I mean, this is debated, but the greatest, you know, scientific book, uh, was probably Newton's Principia Mathematica in, in 1687, you know, gravity, etc. etc. Well, well they, we're talking about people who are Bible-believing believers and theists and, and those who believe in God. Galileo even was a believer in God despite all the uh, bad history that's done on that. I'm a great fan of science. My first degree was in science. Uh, Science is limited. It can only answer the how question, how things work. It can't answer the why question. Science can tell me how my arm works like that. Science cannot tell me what I should be doing with my arm. Yes, yes. Yes, yeah. I, yes, repeat the question. Um, 
how do we understand Genesis 1 uh, in light of science and modern science, etc.? Um, again, I, I would say no problem whatsoever if you're reading Genesis carefully. Uh, and that is... Um, When it comes to reading something like Genesis, you've got to know the kind of literature that it is. Uh, so, we are dealing with something that's got like a talking snake in it. Uh, we've got we've got a period of time before the six days have even happened. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. Darkness over the face of the earth. That's all happened before there's even six days. Okay. Then we've got to look at the kinds of things that are said there. Uh, in it, uh, and if you take it with a brutal literalness, um, it'll actually collapse in on itself. Um, so, you know, even just thinking of, let's go to the talking snake, uh, why would, if it's literally a snake, why would God curse a snake? Is that snake still going around on its belly eating dust to this day? Um, I think there's enough in Genesis to show you that there's symbol going on. Now, that doesn't mean it's not history. It's certainly history, but it's history spoken about using symbol. Jesus did exactly the same thing when he told parables. When he told, for example, the parable of the wicked tenants, uh, that's not a true story in history, but it is a symbolic story that relates to history. It's all about God sending prophets to Israel and then uh, Jesus dying on the cross, etc. And so I think we've got to understand how to read Genesis well and see that it's not a scientific textbook, um, that it's what is it there for. It's not to give us uh, details about modern science. It's there to tell us things like uh, why God created the world, uh, the origin of evil, uh, the purpose of humanity, God's ultimate plan for the world, those kinds of things. Uh, and, I th and the interesting thing is, is actually when you read over the 2,000 years of Christianity, uh, I would hazard a guess that most Christians have recognised the heavy symbolism there. And so even the early, early, you know, uh, someone like Philo who's writing before Jesus was saying that about Genesis. And people in the, in the uh, early church, like the early church father Origen, or even Augustine said, no, 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 no. This is not to be taken with a brutal literalness. There's symbolism that's going on. Yeah, yeah. You've got to ask questions. Why is it? Why is it been shaped in six days? And why does the seventh day never end? That's a really interesting one, isn't it? Uh, and I think there's a whole range of reasons for why it's been chopped up into six days. It's a very, very intricate account. But I think one of the fundamental reasons for the six days is to show that life is not about work. Life, the goal of life is all about relationship with God on the seventh day. And I think that's a tremendously important teaching uh, for many cultures that are given to workaholism and careerism and that kind of thing. Sorry, what do you mean by ordering? Oh, okay. 
Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Understand. Sorry. Uh, so why is Genesis 1-2 not teaching something like that? Um, Genesis 1-1, when read rightly, is saying that God created everything from nothing because the phrase heaven and earth means absolutely everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? So that's absolutely everything. Let's now focus not just on the heavens and the earth, let's focus on the earth. Now, the earth was formless and void, yes, uh, after that initial creation act, we're to understand there to be, I'm not sure I'd want to call it chaos, because chaos has all the overtones of evil, uh, and that would imply that somehow evil has come from God. I think I just want to say some kind of disorder. And I think the creation narrative then shows God fashioning, shaping and forming. Some things are created from nothing, like the light, but other things, like man, is created from the dust of the ground. Uh, and... Uh, the earth brought forth the plants, etc., etc., etc. So God is taking what's already there and forming. And by the end of day six, you've got what was once uninhabitable is now inhabitable and ready uh, for God's purposes. Any other last questions? All right, thank you, Marty. Okay, we're going to take a short break. Okay, so get some coffee, get a drink. And then um, the discussion questions will be shown on the screen. Okay, uh, it's the first day. We've traveled, you know, many, many hours to get here. Okay, so uh, we'll try and keep it short. So just grab a drink, five minutes, and then discussion time should end by 9.30. Okay, yeah. Okay, hop to it. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.